If you'd open your Bibles to Acts chapter 25, we're going to be back in Acts uh, this morning. And while you're turning to Acts chapter 25, I just want to remind you something that uh, I know you've seen in the bulletin. It was announced last week, and, and uh, Philip announced it this morning, that this next week we have a special business meeting. Uh, we need to give you an update of where the uh, relocation uh, process is for our church. Um, they're one of the properties that had become available or that had been available that we had looked at uh, before or had considered being presented to the church. Um, I think it's, it's more open to uh, the time may be right for it to, to look at it, but we do need to pray for uh, oneness of heart, oneness of purpose, for wisdom from the Lord. Uh, we don't want to uh, jump at something if, if it's not what the Lord wants. And so we need to be doing that, and uh, so be in prayer and be here this coming, this coming week uh, for that meeting. We'll, we'll have some, I think, some stew and uh, some venison stew. Is that venison stew that you're going to bring, Greg? Okay, I don't want to scare them, but they had some of his venison stew when we had the open house, and a lot of people loved it. But we'll also have some chili, and, but, but be a part of that, and just uh, we need to hear from you uh, what, 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 uh, where, where you're coming from. Uh, also, we, I just want to remind you uh, certain things about that, the relocation project. Number one, certain things that are true, and that's really, it's, it's been there for a long time. One is this property, or College Hills Baptist Church, our property, has been part of the plan of ASU really for as long as I could remember uh, before even my time in this, in this church, and I've been here 24 some odd years. And so the reason it was built here in this place, this auditorium, was because they knew that they were going to close, even at that time when this auditorium was built in the early 70s, that Johnson Street was being talked about as being closed up. And so uh, these are all part of that. that We've had communications with them over the years. We even hired a lawyer when I was brand new here uh, to look at the possibilities of where we stand legally with them and they had told us, the lawyer told us, that ASU can exercise the power of eminent domain since it's a, it's a state school, and this has been part of their centennial plan. Uh, and so those are things we just need to consider. We will not always be here. I don't know if it's within the next five years, within the next 10 years, within the next 20 years, but sometime in the future, near or far future, uh, ASU will want this property. So we need to just be prepared for that eventuality. So be in prayer for our church as we move forward. Anyway, chapter 25. Haven't y'all missed uh, Acts? I know I have. <laughs> I mean, it's been a great thing around Christmas. I always love the, uh, the Advent series that we normally do. And um, I'm excited really about the teachings that we're, we're doing. We just finished the Advent series. We're coming back to Acts. Uh, we'll be here for the next, for today, and then two more Sundays, and then we'll do a short series, and I hope you all are here for this. Uh, I know they're just fillers, and I've told you that, but they're wonderful, wonderful um, psalms, and I, I call this two-week series our daily shepherd. You know, we normally think of the Lord being our shepherd, like for, from now on, since the point of salvation to the day that we die, and that's true. But he wants us to function from the perspective of trusting him every single day. So I want us to look at two very familiar passages, uh, psalms. One is the 23rd psalm, and the other one is the 84th psalm. 
And we will discover some things. Uh, there's nothing new in, in the scriptures, but there's always wonderful uh, things that the Lord show, sh- shows us in his word. You can never, the word of God never gets old. And then as soon as we get through with that, we will start the series on the suffering servant beginning on February the 10th, leading up to the last, that's going through the last Sunday or the Sunday before Easter. And then, of course, we'll have Easter. And then you can begin to read First um, and Second Peter just to get you familiar with, with the text. And we're going to be starting that series starting in, in uh, April. Wonderful, wonderful series about how to live our Christian lives even in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trials and sufferings. So, chapter 25. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Don't think we can ever pray enough. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We give you praise. And we thank you, Father, for the certainty of who we are because of the certainty of who you are as preserved for us in your word. Thank you so much, Father, for the confidence that we can have of not only your presence in our lives, but even the purpose for which you have created us, for which you have redeemed us. That, Father, that none of us, those of us who know Christ, are just flailing around in this life, not knowing what to do. But, Father, you have given us this very noble purpose of proclaiming who you are to a world that desperately needs to hear the only solution to the ultimate problem of man, which is sin and rebellion against you through your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I was doing a funeral service one time many years ago, and the, uh, the lady who had passed away was a member of our church, and the husband had asked me to help out with the funeral, and, and, and I said, I would be glad to, whatever, and they had somebody else do the main part of the funeral, which is fine. When something like that happens, one, one of the attitudes that we have is we just want to be there for our families, for anybody, not just people in our church, but even outside the church. We've done, we've done funerals. I've done funerals for people I don't know. We've hosted a lunch for them here because we just want to minister to them at this, this very difficult time. But anyway, went to the funeral. And he, they just asked me if I would do, read the obituary and read some scriptures, and I was glad to do that. And I sat down. And then there was a song, and, and then the main preacher got up there. And the main preacher, I could tell, knew the lady, the lady who died. Because we recalled, he recalled, he reminisced about all kinds of things that happened in their lives. And we laughed, and we, we, we cried, and we remembered those times. And he knew exactly those you know how it is in life when you're looking at somebody's life. We all look at our lives, even just remembering things. Like, for instance, in Christmas, to me, life is like it, there's, there are these snapshots that you see of each section of our lives. You can't really just have an ongoing running video of all your life, but there's these snapshots. And I could tell that he really knew her well. And then I could not believe it because he said, let us close in prayer. And it was over. I didn't hear one thing about the Lord Jesus Christ. I knew the lady was a believer because the family was a very strong believer. I didn't hear how she came to know Christ, although I knew the story. But I thought, here's an opportunity in front of all these people gathered here 
at a funeral service to speak about the one important thing in her life, and nothing was said about the Lord Jesus Christ. And at, on the way home, I was teary-eyed, thinking a lot about that, and I promised the Lord. I said, Lord, I promise you that if they ever ask me to help out in a funeral, I don't care if they ask me to introduce somebody, I will speak about you. I will speak about Christ because I cannot believe that we will be in front of people on having, like you guys this morning, listening to someone and not say anything about the most important person in the room and in history and in all the world. I cannot imagine that. I mean, what difference does it make if we remember somebody's life if we forget them and we never say anything about what made the difference in that person's life? And to me, life is that way. There is nothing in this life, there is nothing in this world, there is no circumstance, there is uh, no event, there is nothing that happens. There is not a story, there is not a stage in our life, there is not a time in wherever we are that is not and cannot be a platform for speaking about manifesting, showing people the love and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ through what he did on the cross. Everything that we do, everything that we do, in fact, our very life is a platform for who Christ is. And you know, I would hate to be at the end of our lives when we see the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives us a kind of like a, a show of how, how much time we spent talking about all kinds of things in this life and how much time we spent talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know today, a lot of people would say, well, it is, such, it is not just an appropriate time. And maybe I understand what, what people are saying when they say that. Or even people, and I've heard this from some of you, and some, a lot of you are uh, teachers, public school teachers. And some of you will say, well, that is not permitted in school. Listen, I want you to understand something. There is no government edict. There is no government so powerful. There is no legislation so sure that it can stop a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ from saying something about who Christ is, no matter what the consequences may be. And I know that sounds, in, please understand what I'm saying, and we're, we're going to look at the text. Because I want you to see something here. That Paul, who we have seen before, had been in prison under, under Felix, and he was... Felix left him. Felix was the procurator or the, the governor of, of Judea. And he left him there even though he could not find anything wrong with Paul. Left him in prison for two years until his new replacement was there, uh, Festus. And then, of course, Festus established this, this, this hearing for Paul and found out that there was really nothing wrong with Paul. And so now we, we come to chapter 25, beginning in verse 13 of what's going to happen here. And so Paul has been in prison for this long period of time. He had been in shackles. He had been eating the food that people have simply brought to him. He probably had not had a really good bath like a normal person should have. And yet you would think this guy had no right, and he certainly has no platform from which to speak the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want, I want to tell you, the thing that, would, that struck me about Paul in his life, not just only here in the book of Acts, but you find it in his writings, like for instance in Philippians, when he was also under house arrest, that nothing stopped him. 
that even though he was in chains, he was totally free. And now let me remind you about that, that freedom is not the absence of restraints. Freedom is not when somebody says, you can't, people will say, hey, you're free to, to worship. No, that's not what freedom is. Freedom is when there's a gun to your head and says, you cannot worship, you cannot proclaim Christ, and you can smile at them. Maybe your feet or your knees are shaking, and you say, you can pull the trigger, but I will worship and I will proclaim my Savior and my Lord. That's what true freedom is. Freedom is not bound by chains. Freedom cannot be bound by chains. Freedom cannot be subjugated by government edicts. Freedom is something that Christ purchased for us at the cross, and that's something that I hope, I hope you get to see here. I want to set for, for you, it's kind of a long section, and I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just describe to you the people who are involved in this, in this scenario, in this setting, and then we'll read the text, and we'll just make some observations based on on this narrative. Well, it says in chapter 25, verse 23, that there were, it's, it's interesting, it says the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. The word for pomp there, P-O-M-P, in the Greek is the word fantasia, where we get the word fantasy. This is kind of like a fantasy land. I mean, this is just great pomp and circumstance. This is a, a, a kind of like a, a, a Big to do for, for all of them. But who are these people who are involved in this great pomp, in this great, uh, fantastic uh, event that's, that's going to happen with, with the trial of Paul? Well, it says that there were high ranking officials or officers, probably referring to the five tribunes, Roman tribunes, military officers commanding over 1,000 men each, and probably some of their junior officers who always accompanied them. And then it says, this is, I'm still reading from verse 23, there were high-ranking officers, and then it says, some of the leading men of the city, leading men of the city probably were the prominent politicians. So you've got this room, this elegant room with uh, their marble uh, columns and all this, this fantastic display of power and, 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 and eminence and majesty uh, befitting a place like that. And so you've got these officers smart in their uniforms, uh, with their junior officers. Uh, these were the top brass of the military, the Roman military units based in Caesarea at the time. They were also leading men of the city, prominent politicians, and probably some of their staff who were always also with them. And probably you could find in the ha- uh, hallways leading up to this, to this entry place or to this, to this chamber uh, on, on, on the hallways, you'd probably dis- find these sentries, these stiff-backed sentries standing at attention with their swords or their spears to their side. And then there was this, there are other dignitaries present, just the leading people in the city, just all gathered because they knew this was one big event. The king of that area, King Agrippa and, and his sister Bernice were going to be there. And of course, Festus, the procurator of Judea was also there. And then it says, of course, we have As we said, Festus, he was the governor, he was the procurator, and he was there, he was the leading, one of the leading figures. And then it tells us, and we will read about him, about King Agrippa. Now, who was King Agrippa? It's actually King Agrippa II. King Agrippa II is the youngest and the last of the Herods who had to do with the Lord Jesus and his followers. His great-grandfather was King Herod, the great King Herod, 
who had a boys two years old and younger in the vicinity of Bethlehem murdered. His granduncle uncle had murdered John the Baptist. His father had executed James and imprisoned Peter. And his father was the one in the book of Acts who was, as he, as he uh, entered into this chamber, a similar chamber here, and spoke, and his voice was like golden voice, and people would say, oh, he, he's, he sounds like a god, and he just was taking it in, the worship of people. Then you remember what happened to him? Someone remember? He was eaten with worms while he was still alive, and then he died from that. How would you like to be eaten with worms? But that was his father. Well, King Agrippa II, this one who's going to be in this narrative, is the youngest of those Herods. He was partly Jewish, and the Romans treasured his view on Jewish religious matters. The, one, the other one who was with him was, it says in verse 23, the next day Agrippa and Bernice came. Well, who was Bernice? Bernice was King Agrippa's younger sister who lived with him in the palace. She was the wife to Herod of Chalcis, which was in Lebanon, who was also her uncle. She was also a wife to King Polemon of Cilicia. She was once engaged to Marcus, a nephew of the philosopher Philo. She later became Emperor Titus's mistress, and in fact, Titus wanted to marry her, but the emperor had to send her away because the Romans were scandalized by her life and her behavior. And you know why? Because the rumors were, and a lot of historians agreed with this, that she was not only the younger sister of Agrippa II, but she was also his mistress. They were involved in an incestuous relationship. The irony here is you find this couple, Agrippa II and Bernice, dressed in their regal clothes, sitting on their, on, on, on their thrones with Festus, who was the governor, who was the procurator of Judea. And they were the ones who were going to judge Paul, who was innocent. He was the innocent man, and yet he was the one who was going to be judged by these people who were guilty of all kinds of things. Well, let's read the text. You see this, I hope you've gotten the sense of the, just the place, and we have a picture up here, kind of give you an idea of what probably it felt like, it looked like. Paul certainly probably looked like a sore thumb sticking out because of his attire, because of who he was after spending all those years in prison before this very regal, very formal, majestic, fantastic setting. Verse 13 of chapter 25. It says, A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and, ha and asked that he be condemned. I told him that it is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he had faced his accusers and has had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. 
When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. When Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. <coughs> then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. And actually the Greek speaks of an imperfect tense here, that he's been wanting to hear him. He's heard about Paul and he's wanting to hear what he has to say. So Festus replied, tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death. But because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to His Majesty about Him. Therefore, I have brought Him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know that I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O King, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. 
And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my observation, in my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God by proving their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind. He shouted, your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray, God, that not only you but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for this change. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them, they left the room. And while talking with one another, they said, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. 
Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let me just make some observations, some truths from this narrative that we just read. Number one, everything in life is an opportunity to speak about the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. It didn't matter if he was in prison. It didn't matter if he was in chains. It didn't matter any of that. In the life of Paul, every, everything that happened in his life was a chance to tell people about who Christ was. And today, it hasn't changed. Whether it's death, whether it's the birth of a baby, whether it's illness, whether you just got you a promotion in a job, or you just got fired, whether you're playing games with a bunch of friends or watching a football game or going to a sporting event or watching your kids play soccer or volleyball or basketball, whatever it may be, everything is an opportunity to tell people, to be able to open up a conversation, to tell people that this is my Lord. Second thing is this. And we have seen this over and over in the book of Acts. Not only is everything in life is an, is an opportunity to speak about the good news of Jesus Christ, there is a compulsion for believers to speak about the good news of Jesus Christ. And let me explain what, what we mean by that. One of the phrases that I have repeated through this whole series is what the disciples said in Acts chapter 4 when they were told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. And they said, we cannot help but speak about the things we have seen and we have heard. He says, we cannot help. This is not a program. That, proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a program that we do. It's not an evangelistic effort that we simply engage in, although we don't mind doing those things. But it's a compulsion from within. When our hearts are, have been gripped by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we understand, listen, when we understand the gospel from Genesis to the book of Revelation to what Christ did, that you and I don't deserve anything, that you and I deserve nothing except hell. That's it. And God has given us salvation in Jesus Christ. He's given us this grace, this wonderful love, and, and, and the payment for our sins in what Christ did on the cross. There is nothing that is greater than that. There, you can be healed of every disease, and I have been healed of, my, of a disease before, of a problem that I had. And listen, but I've always said to you that, that even at the time, even my, with my cancer or with my hip, when I, when I hurt my hip, when, we were, when Kim and I were traveling, one of these days I will still die, but I, no one can ever take away the good news, the, the salvation, the, the relationship that I've had, that I have now with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, because that is ultimately what man needs. It is a compulsion from within. And folks, I, I, I want to appeal to you. It is not something that we simply do because we, we've got to do it. When you cannot, when, when there's something that grips your heart, when, when there is an event in your life, when there's a person that means so much to you, you're going to be talking about that person, you're going to be talking about that event. I get so tickled at our young people when they find a girlfriend or boyfriend because it's all they talk about. You know, it's sickening. 
Oh, beautiful she is. Oh, gorgeous she is. Uh, we're talking about something else now. But oh. Why? Because it's the heart. You, you don't say, okay, you got to talk about your beautiful girlfriend, girlfriend uh, at least once a day. Oh, I haven't talked about her today. I got to talk. That's how we treat the Lord Jesus Christ. But if he's someone who's special to us, and we are incredulous, and you and I could not believe that we are so fortunate, we are so blessed, that we deserve nothing but hell, and he's given us life and sonship, and all these blessings that come from that, then that becomes the main topic that we say. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The Lord Jesus said, the third thing is this. We find our purpose in the very purpose of God. Paul's purpose in life, I mean, it just, just kind of went to the wayside. You can read Philippians, you can read 2 Corinthians, the things that matter to him. He said, I count everything as dung. I count everything as something you flush in the commode compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything was dung compared to to him knowing Christ. And our purpose is not different than who Christ is. Oftentimes we will think, you know, maybe if, if, if I pray harder, God is going to tell me what it is that he wants me to do with my life. He already has. You don't have to guess. You can say, well, you know what I mean, maybe what career. It doesn't matter what career. What is it that you're interested in? What is it that you're good at? And maybe you can even make a mistake in, 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 in taking the wrong courses in college. Guess what? All of those mistakes that you make, they're still platforms from which to speak and live out the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I look at my life, and there were many times early on in ministry, I thought, man, I wasted all those years when I was in school studying philosophy and political science and, and history. And, but nothing is wasted in the gospel. There's nothing that is wasted. Yeah, I paid money for it. I still read stuff like that. And I get to talk. The Lord uses my background. People will come to me about, especially college students who have questions about the Lord and philosophy and, uh, and, and what it means in terms of what all these guys say. And there's nothing that is wasted. Everything is a platform for who he is. Our purpose well, Paul, Paul was already told, in fact, when, after his conversion in Acts chapter 9, you remember what the Lord said to Ananias when, Ananias, when, when God told Ananias to go to Paul? He says, go, Ananias, this man Paul is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul already knew what was, what was going to happen to him. He didn't have to guess. What about us? I mean, we know from the scriptures what the Lord's purpose was. He said he came to seek and save that which is lost. And then he tells us, tells his disciples, and he tells us by extension before he ascended into heaven, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. What is the one command that he gives there? Someone tell me. Matthew 28. Make disciples. As you are going, make disciples. 
who will make disciples, who will make disciples. What is our purpose? Our purpose is not so I can get a degree or you can get a degree and make all the money in the world, have a fat retirement deal, and you can buy the best Winnebago and they just travel around the country. There's nothing wrong with that if you use it as a platform for who Christ is. But listen, the purpose of everything that we are and everything that we do is the same purpose for which Christ came here. And when you look at it, everything in the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it is an exposition of who God is, his person, his character, and his plan of redemption for man. This is what this is. Fourth thing I want us to see is this. We must and can trust God to speak through us. Jesus told the disciples in Luke chapter 12, he said, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of heaven. By the way, this has nothing to do with whether you like a passage on Facebook or not. I, I get so aggravated that people putting, if you believe in this, and they'll put this text here. If you don't like this, you know, you don't like push like, like you're guilty of this. It's so ridiculous. Anyway. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And then he said, When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at the time what you should say. And it was not just a promise that he gave the disciples at the time, although it was, and for us today. It was something that he had, we, we could see even in the Old Testament, the Old Testament history that God had been doing by the power of his Holy Spirit. Remember, Ananias, I mean, uh, uh, Azariah, uh, uh, Azael, and, and, and Hananiah before uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, when they were threatened with their lives to be thrown in the, in the fiery furnace. And God gave them the word, says, our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we still will not bow down to your image, O king. And God saved him. The fifth thing is this. And please don't miss this. Our message must be the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might say, why do you say that? Because often, what we, we will share with people our testimonies. We will say, well, you know, God answered this prayer, or God blessed, and God blesses, and God answers prayers, and God is all those things. Christ is all those things. He's, 
He helps us when we're in time of need. He encourages us when we're down. He provides for the things that we need. He is all of that, but all of those proceed from the foundation of who he is. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he said, we preach Christ, not just Jesus. He doesn't just say Jesus is the message that we have. He said, but, but he said, we preach Christ crucified because it is his work, his redemptive work on the cross that gives meaning to everything that we are and everything that we have. You can share things that Christ did for you or that God did for you if you do not share the gospel with people you have not really shared who Christ is. And so let's, let's be really careful. Like testimonies, testimonies are like, just, just, they're just platters. The important thing in a testimony is not my testimony. Because I can tell you this. I can tell you my testimony and probably within a few years you'll, or a few months, maybe a few weeks, you'll forget them my testimony, or forget somebody's testimony. But you know what will, what will stay with people? It's the gospel message. The gospel message that we have this holy, blameless, majestic, eternal God. And man, because of his sin and rebellion against his holy God, has been judged and has been condemned to die and, to be sent, and has been sentenced to hell forever. And man cannot do anything about that and so what God did is knowing that, that man cannot do anything about his condition, he sends his son, Jesus Christ, so that in Christ, first, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that, that he who is without sin became sin for us, that in him we might have the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That is the message. That Christ is the answer. Listen, we all have needs. Micah was saying that earlier. We all struggle with things. This is a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. Life pivots on a dime, doesn't it? I mean, things are going well, and then you get a phone call. You have cancer, or you get a phone call. You, your, your son or somebody had a wreck, or you come home, and, 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 and your spouse's belongings are gone, and he or she has left you. Or you get a call from, from, from the school and says that your, your child is not only failing, but he hadn't been in school for a long time, or he's been caught with drugs or dealing drugs or whatever. And, and life pivots on a, on a dime, doesn't it? And God can help us, and God will help us, but it begins with our understanding of the gospel. And that's what we proclaim. The greatest need that man has is salvation. And, and we have, the world today, quote-unquote evangelicals, have sold us a bill of goods that says, hey, we'll sell you this Jesus, this cheap Jesus trinket that they sell you. He's, he's this magician who can, you can call him at any time and you rub this, this hanky, and he'll come to you, and, and he'll heal you of every disease, and, and he'll do all this stuff. And if you rub this hanky that's been dipped in the Jordan River, and, which, by the way, is very dirty, and you rub it on your, on your, on your, on your uh, checkbook, then you'll, you'll never be wanting of anyone. Listen, there are people in the Scriptures who were poor, who were persecuted, who died for their faith. All we have to do is test the teachings of people against the Word of God, don't we? It says in, in Hebrews 11, talking about people who will not relinquish their, their, their faith in God. It says these people wandered in caves and crevices, holes in the ground. It says utterly poor, 
since this world was not worthy of them. We know brothers and sisters who are like that, who just don't even have enough money to buy them for the next food, the next meal that they, that they need. And we know brothers and sisters who have died for their faith. And yet the world offers a Jesus, a Jesus on demand, kind of like your cable. So you don't like him sometimes? Just turn it to the next channel. You'll get a Jesus you like. And man created God in his image. That's what we have done. Our message must be the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, Jews demand miraculous signs, Greeks look for wisdom, and may I say the American church look, looks for prosperity. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Number six, and the last one. We also must tell people how to respond to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this exchange here. Paul was telling them about who Christ was and what he did. And then in, in verse 19 of chapter 26, Paul, looking at King Agrippa, he says, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preach, and listen to this, I, I preach that they should repent and turn to God. And the NIV says, and prove the repentance by faith of these. But the, the proof there is actually, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a prepositional clause, which means it is a result of those two actions. The, the first actions that he mentioned, which is repent, repentance and turning to God. What is repentance? Repentance means to change their minds about God and sin. You do not believe God, you're facing this way. You now say you believe in God, you believe in what he has done through his son. To turn means to change the direction or orientation of your life. You're, you're, you live in, in darkness under the dominion of Satan, under the dominion of this world, and you now turn, you begin to turn, and you say, I want something that God is offering. And says, proving, it's gotta be, there's got to be some fruit. And the Bible tells us that there's always fruit. If nothing else, it's the fruit of being, feeling guilty when you sin. Whereas before, as a, a non-Christian, you can enjoy your sin. And now you hate it when you sin. Because you cannot enjoy sin when the Holy Spirit lives in you. By the way, when you live life like this, people will think you're crazy. That's why Festus interrupted Paul's defense in verse 24. He says, you're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. You know, that's what people think of us as believers when we're committed to Christ, when our hearts have been gripped by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we speak about the Lord because he's the most precious thing to us. Some people say, you've got to be stupid to believe that stuff. You've got to be really dunce to believe that baloney about the resurrection, about God becoming man and dying for your sins. 
Let me read to you from R. Kent Hughes' commentary in the book of Acts. He just talks about how crazy Christians are and have been. Of course, Paul says, which is crazy for a lot of people, he says in Philippians 1, he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In 1913, when William Borden, age 26, a graduate of Yale and Princeton, left his palatial home near Chicago's Lakeshore Drive, giving away $500,000 to become a missionary to the Muslim world. Many of his contemporaries thought he was crazy. And when he died six months later from cerebral meningitis amidst the flies and heat of a Cairo hospital, some were sure he was mentally unbalanced. Got to be dumb to give up all your wealth to go to Egypt to tell those Muslims about Christ. In, 19, in 1885, when the Cambridge Seven, including C.T. Studd, England's most famous athlete, left for China, they were ridiculed for their, quote-unquote, enthusiasm, a very polite British way of saying mad fanaticism. The prophetic words of the later martyred Chet Bitterman, when he said, I would not be a bit surprised if the Lord required martyrdom of somebody in Wycliffe, Wycliffe Bible translators, maybe someone in Colombia. And he said, I am willing. If you're a Festus or an Agrippa, or maybe even some believers in the church who have believed the lie of evangelical garbage today that says that Christ died on the cross so you can be prosperous. Maybe you'll think guys like Chet Bitterman, Stud, and Borden were just crazy people. The July-September 1982 issue of Sparks Magazine in an article entitled Faith as Madness documented the then official Soviet position of religion. This is what they said. Belief in God is considered a delusion. A delusion. Well, let me burst their bubble. The only truth, the only reality that we have, the only reality that would last is the truth of who Christ is and what he's done for us. And that is why Paul could write, in 2 Corinthians, focus your eyes on things that are not seen, not on the things that are seen. The stuff that we have here today, it'll disappear. The clothes that you have, they get old. The cars, the nice cars you drive, it's going to get scratched. It's going to end up in a junkyard. The only thing that will last is Christ. What is the message of your life. Paul says, he says, I, I, I told them that, you should, that they should repent and turn from their ways and turn to God, proving by their life that they have actually repented and turned from their ways and turned to God and have by faith become followers of Christ. And I've said this to you before. One of the scariest things for me that I think a lot about and I pray about 
is done in our churches, even here at College Hills Baptist Church, that there may be some of you here who have trusted your religion, you've trusted you being a Baptist, and, and you have thought that you have certainty and assurance of salvation because you have been baptized. And, and maybe you walked down the aisle and it meant something to you at the time. Maybe you've said the sinner's prayer and maybe it meant something to you. But I don't know that. But you need to make sure that that was real, that you didn't si- simply say a prayer, an empty prayer, that there's something in your life that proves who you are in Christ. If there's nothing, if there's no proof, if there's no sense of guilt when you sin, if there's no desire for God, the things of God, the Word of God, and and there's no compulsion in your heart to share Christ, you need to ask yourself, God, Jesus, do I really, are you really my Savior? Do I really have eternal life? Because the saddest thing that can happen is when you, if you think that you have trusted Christ and to find out one of these days when that last breath, when you breathe that last breath and you do not end up in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ or rapture happens and you're left here in this auditorium looking around wondering what happened to the rest of us. You need to make sure. And for the rest of us who are sure of that and enjoy Enjoy the the life in Christ. Let everything in your life be a platform from which the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will go forth, no matter what that is, in good times, in bad, in, in, in riches and in poverty, in sickness and in health. It doesn't matter what it is. It is a platform. Let it be your life be a platform of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we, we have no message We have nothing to say except about you and your son. And we can describe it and we can share it and we can write about it and write about you and we can post it on Facebook. We can tell our kids and our grandkids. We can tell our friends and it'll never ends because it'll never ends for us as you unpack your love and your grace for us every single moment, every single time, every single day, year in and year out. Father, we have nothing but you. But with you, everything makes sense. Everything has purpose. Everything has beauty. Everything has taste. Everything has color. Everything is distinctive. Everything is delightful and joyful because of you. And help us to live that life in the enjoyment of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Would you sing this song of praise to our God, our good, gracious God? Sing it with all your heart.